Welcome, Riverstone Church family and friends. Welcome those who are visiting here among us or visiting online. It's good to have you. I'm Austin Delgado, the pastor of outreach here at Riverstone, and I'd like to begin with a few questions for you to ponder as we continue our series in Ephesians this morning. Where did we come from? What is the meaning of life? How are we to live our lives? What will happen to us at the end? If you are a human being, no matter where you live or what your path has been in life, we all, in one way or another, have wondered and at times been haunted by at least these four ultimate life questions. Where did we come from? Origin. What is the meaning of life? Purpose. How are we to live our lives? Morality, ethics. And where are we going? Destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Leading defenders of the Christian faith like those with Arzim International, whom I first learned this and really thought about this more under, spend their lives traveling around the world seeking to show and prove how the only coherent and cohesive answer to these ultimate life questions can be is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are more questions that are also very important, like, what is wrong with us? How do we write what is wrong with us? Still, all ultimate life questions can only be fully explained and understood in light of the gospel of Jesus. Since the end of September, we've been studying the book of Ephesians and seen how Paul labors to make very clear who God is, how he operates, who we are, how we come into the world, what is wrong with us, and all that God has done for us to right what is wrong and restore us to whom he intended us to be living in harmony with him. He has shown us our destiny. And in the second half of his letter, starting here in chapter 4, he shows us how God wants us to live in view of who he is and all that he's done for us. In summary of 
The last few Sundays, we've seen that he has called us to strive toward unity, holiness, righteousness, as we live out our purpose to build up the church and witness to the world that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Paul will continue to explain for us in very practical ways this morning what life as a child of God or Christian should consist of. How we are to live our lives. Ethics. And isn't this typically what we want or at times all we really want? Just tell me, just tell me what to do and what not to do, and, and I'll just do the best I can. Isn't that what religion is all about anyway? Doing this and not doing that. Paul in his letter has made it very clear that his response to that common posture of ours would be, oh no, no you'd be missing so much. You'd be depriving yourself of the fullness of joy and the blessing God holds out to those who walk in harmony with Him. You want to know how you should live? Good. But first, you must know who God really is. And second, you must know who you really are. And third, you need to know all that God has done for you. And then, and only then, do Christian ethics make sense. How we should live our lives and why. In other words, what we'll see this morning is that Paul doesn't only give us what we want to know, he gives us way more. And that is good. We need it. Though, upon our reflection, it may not be exactly what we want to hear or how we want to hear it. Nevertheless, it is good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in you is truth and life. Lord, your word is life. So as we seek to know you more fully, in order to understand ourselves more fully and know your desire for us in living in harmony with you and with one another. Lord, bring life to our souls and our hearts this morning through your word. Stir us up with a love for you, a love for others, and, a, and an eager desire, Lord, to live our lives walking in harmony with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We will pick up where we left off at verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. But a quick note before we begin. Paul is going to begin this section with therefore. 
which marks a transition from the general exhortations that we read last week to more specific exhortations or appeals. Last week we heard his appeal from Pastor John. When Christ becomes your new master and king, you have a new identity. Therefore, put off your old self and put on your new self, created anew in the likeness of God. In our passage this morning, Paul will help us understand in more practical ways what that looks like. And he does so in a steady pattern that is helpful for our study. Watch how he exhorts us in a variety of ways, but following the same pattern. Put off and put on for a purpose. Put off and put on for a purpose. Let's read verse 25. Therefore... Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You are one body, church family, eternally bound to one another in Christ, members of one another. Neighbor is being used here in a more focused sense, meaning brother or sister in the household of God. So, we must speak truth to one another in order to strengthen our unity and not corrode it. What is the truth we speak? Verse 21 from last week. The truth is in Jesus. We speak His Word, His pure love, His compassion, His strength, His character. We speak His gospel of hope to one another. That's how we keep and strengthen our unity, Paul says. We speak words that care for the interests of others over ourselves. That's how we put away falsehood. John Stott, a commentator, shows how this verse can be interpreted another way. Put away the lie. I like that. What's the lie? the chief lie of all lies for us, namely, that you are master over your own life, that you are God, and that all things are oriented to you. That's why we lie, right? We want what we want, and I want it now. Whether it's attention, or achievement, or advancement, a, a one-up and over on others, or we lie to justify our sin, leading others to join us in our corruption. John Chrysostom an early church father from the 4th century drives this point further by saying, if the eye sees a serpent, does it deceive the foot? If the tongue 
tastes what is bitter, does it deceive the stomach? What he's saying is, if we truly cared for one another the way Christ Jesus cares for us and the way a body works together for its whole good, then we would honestly seek the well-being of each other, spurring one another on toward love and holiness and righteousness and truth striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's move on to verses 26 and 27. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, this can be confusing. In another few verses, Paul will go on to tell us to put away all anger. So why does he tell us to be angry? Let me translate. Put away bad anger. Put on good anger for the purpose of protection and preservation. Now, why do I add categories of good anger and bad anger? Because a survey of the Bible would show that these two categories certainly do exist. And they are commonly referred to as righteous anger or godly anger and unrighteous anger or sinful anger. I'll explain. God burns with anger against all sin and selfish wickedness. He hates that people reject Him, pervert His justice and His goodness oppressing others, murdering others, destroying others, slandering one another for selfish gain. He hates it. And so should we. We who too have been, who have been made righteous should also love righteousness and hate evil. If God's Spirit lives in you, if you are a Christian, if you so believe the truth and reality of the person and work of Jesus, and His Spirit lives in you, then He will cause you to love the things that He loves and hate the things that He hates. Anger, then, is an expression of justice. Righteous anger, that is. We should hate to see the perversion and wickedness on our TVs, on our children's devices, in our children's classrooms, in our workplaces, throughout the world. We should hate the way that people speak to one another, speak about one another, treat each other. And we should hate 
that corruption that still remains in our own hearts. But there is a fine line between godly anger against all evil and injustices and ungodly anger, which leads to destruction, which is why James says, be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We love to take vengeance into our own hands. We love to repay those who offend us. That's sin. That's unrighteous anger. Notice something here. Notice that Paul doesn't say the devil causes that anger. No, no. It's already there. That's already there in our hearts. The devil waits for the right opportunity to fuel that anger and send you off like a juggernaut devouring those in your path whether it be your spouse, your kids, your family and friends, others in the church or in the world. So, what do we do, Paul? What do we do with this anger that arouses at times so that we do not sin as we seek to protect our unity, holiness, righteousness, what Paul does is, he quotes directly from Psalm 4 here in this double command to be angry and do not sin. Psalm 4 reflects the anger of a righteous sufferer. David is being hunted, mocked, and reviled by his own people quite possibly even his own son at this point in his life. They destroy his reputation and name with all kinds of false accusations. And in this psalm, he lays on his bed and speaks to himself and to his foes in meditation and says, Be angry. But do not sin. Be still in your bed. Meditate and trust in God. In peace I will lie down. For you alone, O God, make me to dwell in safety. You see the connection? Why Paul quotes Psalm 4? Paul is saying, there is a lot that will anger you in this life, and it should at times. But don't you take that anger upon yourself because the devil will seize an opportunity to devour you and others with it. Deal with it quickly. Don't let the sun go down. Paul speaks in figurative language. Deal with it quickly. Come to God. Trust Him. Hope in Him. 
leave room for the vengeance of God to execute justice. Vengeance is mine, God says in Deuteronomy. Family, friends, there is great peace and freedom when we allow God to execute judgment and vengeance on our behalf, on his behalf. Put off sinful anger, put on good anger for protection and preservation. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Put off stealing, put on good work for the purpose of giving. In our new identity in Christ, we stop seeking our own gain unjustly by theft, whether it be straight-up shoplifting or stealing from others, to cheating on your tax returns, twisting truths and leading people toward false hopes in order to sustain your business and thrive economically? Theft. Put it away, Paul says. Two quick points to make on this exhortation that we don't want to quickly pass over. Rather, Paul says, in our new identity in Christ, Pursue work that is good. Good work. As Christians, we need to examine the work that we do. Too many jobs require us to deceive and manipulate others in order to profit. Promise them it'll be good, and they'll be secure, they'll love it, knowing that it will leave them shortchanged, needing to come back for more, and empty. That's bad work. That's injustice. That's committing your hands to perpetuating injustices. Examine what you put your hands to, family in Christ. Does it bring true good to people or rob them? Second point, we work for good in order to give. How many of us work in order to have so that we can give? I know I don't, not nearly as much as I wish I did. America tells me I work to have and to have even more and more. 
God tells me and convicts me, I work to have in order to give to those in need. Having a new identity in Christ, we need to reconsider the end of everything we have, namely, for the good of God and others. Second test for a Christian work ethic is, what am I giving to those in need? Family, if I could take a moment and honestly commend you all from my position in the church, on behalf of our staff, elders, church uh, uh, pastors, we have been incredibly encouraged by your generosity, especially this last year, in the midst of great hardship and, and difficulties and straining. The way that the Spirit of God has been moving among Riverstone Church, causing us to give of ourselves and resources, honestly, good work. Keep it up. It has been so encouraging to see us watch you all respond to the Lord's work and give generously to those in need. I mean that on behalf of us all and to those who do not give, I would encourage you to consider the end of your resources, the resources that have been temporarily entrusted to you to manage because the boss is coming back to take an account of what he's given you. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. I like that because it's broad enough to encompass all speech that doesn't build up. All speech that is not wholesome. However, the original word here is used in one other place in the New Testament. And it translates bad or rotten. It's when Jesus says in the Gospels that every good tree will bear good fruit. And every bad tree or rotten tree bears rotten fruit. I find the image helpful because it connects the good or bad fruit with the good or bad root. The root referring to the nature of our hearts. Jesus says elsewhere, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Rotten heart, rotten words. Redeemed heart, refreshingly good words. Let no rotten word come out of your mouth. Why? Because it affects the health of the fruit around you. It rots the fruit. Our mouths are a flame that can set a forest ablaze. Put off bad speech 
put on good speech for the purpose of nourishing the body. If you are a Christian, your mouth should be a fountain of grace, always seeking to nourish others with the truth and love of Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh-oh, I know what you're thinking. It's always risky when the preacher asks us a question. It's like when your spouse or girlfriend, boyfriend, fiance, someone close to you uh, says to you, and it feels like it's out of the blue, can I ask you something? Uh-oh, this could go one or two ways. Either we can go this way, uh, and, and you're going to ask me, oh, what do we want for dinner? What are we going to do tomorrow? I hope we go down that way. Or maybe we go down the other road in which I know I must have said or did something that wasn't building you up. Family, we're going to go down this road right now, okay? And I, and I preface this because I would ask that, that you bear with me and be patient with me. Let me tell you, I was telling Pastor John this on Friday. By the end of writing this sermon on by Friday morning, after all these exhortations, I was like, the weight of needing to come up here and preach it, I felt like I was going to come up here like a ninja, just slicing and dicing, shoot, I mean, w with all sorts of weapons. That's the last thing I wanted to do. Okay, I just, I, I, I want to come up here and, 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 and preach and interpret and apply the Word of God the way that I feel that, that He's stating it. And, and the Bible says that the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, sword and pierces the soul, exposing the thoughts of the heart. But sometimes it's hard for the preacher, the one wielding it. So bear with me as we continue on in our exhortations, okay? I have a question for you. Over this last year, as the world has suffered great hardships, great affliction, great loss, great divisions and battles of all kinds with each other, in view of the great needs of our moment in time, has your mouth been primarily used as a means of grace? Dispensing the healing, assuring, comforting, encouraging, hopeful truths of God? Or has it been used more so as a pollution spout? further contaminating the holy church of God and its pure witness to the world. Something to seriously consider as we reflect on this last year and move forward into a new year. Let's read the, the final verses, 30 through 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. 
Paul broadens out here a bit to cover a swath of corrupt characteristics of the old self and says, let all evil anger and bitterness and wrath be put away. These being the evolved expressions and realities of not dealing with your anger quickly. Put away clamor and slander. Do you know what clamoring is? I'm sure you do. Just turn on the television. Turn on the news. Scroll through your Instagram. Scroll through Facebook and TikTok. Listen in the hallways. Listen in the workplace. Listen out in the world, maybe even in your own home. You name the hot topic of our day. You know that sound of constant barking back and forth and back and forth like dogs in a pound that far too many of us just seem to love as it tickles our ears to hear and want to engage? Arguing and name-calling, grouping, labeling, seeking to destroy names and reputations, insinuating all kinds of false motives on one another, slandering one another, slandering fellow students and classmates, slandering our leaders and governors appointed by God, slandering even pastors appointed by God. Paul says, put that evil away. It is evil. It is malice. And it is in direct opposition to the goodness and truth of God. Don't forget, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. And it grieves him deeply. Stop resisting the sanctifying and cleansing work that he begun in you when he sealed you at the day of your conversion and will complete in you on that day that Jesus comes back to restore and make all things new to himself. Family, we are secure. We have hope. We know where we're going to everlasting joy with God in the kingdom of heaven. Infinite riches, infinite beauties, and not a trace of malice or deceit forever and ever. We have everything our hearts and souls long for. We are rich in Christ Jesus. We need nothing more. When you see and embrace that reality, who we are and whose we are in Christ Jesus and what that means, you won't need to lie, cheat, steal, curse, and fight family. We've won. We've won the greatest battle over sin, death, and decay. The Lord is our shepherd. We have no other need or want. We are fully satisfied 
and secure in him. Only hopeful people can truly be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. The literal word here for forgiving is being gracious. A bit of a broader category, being gracious to one another just as God has been gracious to us. We are gracious because we have first been shown grace. To encapsulate many of these reviewed behaviors here this morning, put off all maliciousness and put on all graciousness for the purpose of glorifying God. In closing, how do we put off ill will and put on all this goodwill and Christ-likeness to honor God? We remember in every day and in every situation the gospel of Jesus linked with these two key words, just as, just as. Just as Christ took initiative to come and love us though we were his en enemies, excuse me, so I can take initiative to extend love to those who offend me. Just as Christ was silent and overlooked, being mocked and ridiculed, having his name and reputation smeared, so can I overlook and forgive those who slander me and oppose me. Just as Christ allowed his foes to rob him let go, and let go of his earthly possessions, knowing that his eternal riches are waiting for him in heaven, so we can sacrifice loss for the sake of others in this short life, knowing of the bounty to come. Just as Christ came to serve and not be served, to love first and not to be loved first, to give his life for our eternal gain, so we can lay ourselves down in loving, selfless service toward others, even when they don't appreciate it right away. Family, Friends, this gospel-centered principle can apply in all situations in your marriage, with your kids, with your friends, in the church, at school, in the workplace, and the world, just as he has done for us, so now can we do for others. Believe him. Trust him, hope in him, and following Christ's example is how we too, along with him, embody both grace 
and truth to the building of his church and witness to the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Thank you that you have set your special love upon us, called us into your family, filled us with your spirit. Lord, for those who do not yet know you, we pray that you would lead them to yourself. Lord, awaken in them a hunger for you, a love for you. Enlighten the eyes of their heart to see and behold the beauties of Christ Jesus and the inheritance of the saints. And for us all, Lord, fill us up with your love. Send us out into the world as agents of peace and reconciliation. Bless us, keep us, make your face to shine upon us, O God, that through us your ways and your name would be made known in our homes, in our communities, and throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, church family. Have a great weekend.